The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's everybody doing, Heritage? If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand up nice and high, wave it around, maybe do a couple of jumping jacks, and we'll make sure that you get one. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you. We pray that the Lord would use that to teach uh, you more and more of His grace, His goodness, His gospel, and His will for your life. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today. And uh, it's a holiday. It's a popular holiday. They say that this year the travel, the number of people traveling this 4th of July, they're expecting to break all records. And uh, so so I'm going to have mercy on all of you who stuck around in town today on a beautiful day. I've got two verses to cover and one point to make out of two verses. Now, those of you that know me, you're not cheering too loud because you're like, that's still an hour, dude. But we're going to try. We're going to do our best. We're going to make effort. That would be funny if you knew what the topic of the sermon was, actually. Later on, go, oh, yeah. A couple of announcements while you're turning there. Uh, Let's see. Family camp signups are going on right now out in the foyer at the aforementioned Lake of the Woods. Sam didn't do any of us any favors on family camp signups when he was talking about the conditions at Lake of the Woods. But uh, we will have our own private place Um, uh, yeah, I, I had some jokes about drunkards and stuff. I'm just not going to do it. So move on. Family camp signups coming up. That is August 18th through the 21st. Um, also, this Wednesday is our first Wednesday service. As you guys know, our midweek service is temporarily on hold. Starts back on September 7th. Um, but once a month on the first Wednesday of every month, we're getting together to worship, fellowship, enjoy a meal. Sweet Tea Express is catering this. And so uh, donation only for the food and all the money that's donated is going to the Feed My Starving Children project. So um, that is this week. Food starts being served at, I believe, 6 o'clock. And festivities, games, ice cream. Uh, if you missed it last time, you really need to come on out and join us. We, uh, we were actually surprised. We were like, all right, we're doing this. We don't know how many people are going to show. And we had a massive crowd and tons of games. And it was just a great night. Amen. If you were here and enjoyed it last time, give me an amen. Yeah. So I want more people to come out and join us and let's worship, sing, eat, and just enjoy some fellowship together this Wednesday night starting at 6 o'clock. And finally, the men's Bible study, which meets on Thursday mornings at 6.30. Um, this week is not meeting. We will be uh, uh, meeting again one week from this coming Thursday. So no men's Bible study this week. That's going to be next week. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be, but I'm going to open us up by reading a different verse from Corinthians. You can just listen along if you will. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for the opportunity to to gather together, Lord, the the church of God, to be able to enjoy fellowship with one another, to sing, Lord, for communion and that gift. I thank you for your word, Lord. May we not take for granted the gift that we have here in our hands. This is not some mere book, but Lord, we have the tangible, miraculous, living word of God. You, the creator of heaven and earth, have taken the time to speak to us. And I pray, God, that this morning, as we open your word, that you would just speak to us anew this morning, Lord. That you would give us understanding of your word. 
Grace us, Lord. May your spirit move in this place and awaken hearts, minds, and souls. And may we leave this place different than when we came. May we be closer to you and more like you as a result of this time spent in your word. So Lord, we bow before you. And Lord, we position ourselves beneath your word and the authority of your scripture. And we pray that you would have your way with your church. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. I don't know if you guys are getting that up there. I'm getting some feedback back here. Guys, if there's anything we can do about that. If not, we'll, we'll, we'll live. So uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I just read this verse to you that says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, or which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. We at Heritage, we are what's referred to as a gospel-centered church. That's what we try to define ourselves by. And, and what we mean by that is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its ramifications, all of its applications are the motivation and the center, the core and the purpose to everything that we desire to do here as a church. The, the gospel being the fact that we were created by God, but we have alienated ourselves from God by our sin and rebellion wanting to be our own gods, wanting to live our lives our own way and, and rejecting the God who has created us. But God in his infinite mercy looked down on our position, realizing our eternal destiny apart from him. And God became flesh, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, came to earth, lived as we did, but way better, perfect, never sinning against God, never rebelling against his father, accomplishing everything we couldn't possibly do. And then he went to the cross. And there on the, on the cross, the, the guilt, the, the, the record, the sins that we had built up were placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ and he paid the price of our sin. The scriptures say that the wages of sin is death and Christ died on the cross for our sins. But on the third day rose again conquering sin and death and he now is in heaven preparing a place for us and he will return but to that end he says to those who are willing to no longer put their their trust in their own efforts no longer put our belief in our own selves that we are good enough or that we can accomplish that will reject the idea that we are gods that will put our faith in Christ and in his work by faith in that alone, we are saved, we are forgiven. The sin that is all over our record is wiped white as snow as we looked at during communion time. We have been blessed and graced by God. And now that we have been saved, the gospel is still at work. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks, he reminds the church. He says, I remind you brothers of the gospel, which we just talked about just now. He says, the gospel I preached to you, which you received. In other words, that's how we're saved. We preach the gospel, we believe in the gospel, we respond in faith to the gospel, and we're saved. Amen? I, come on, not everybody camped with Sam. We're saved. Amen? Amen. But then what do we do with the gospel now? Is that just like our membership card that gets us in? And now we move on to other things? Paul would say, heaven forbid. He says, I'm reminding you of the gospel I preach, which you received and then he says, in which you stand. Now received, past tense. I preached the gospel, you received it, you're saved. Past tense, present tense, in which you stand. Like right now, we stand on the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and by which you are being saved. 
For some, that would be a troubling comment. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I heard the gospel in 1978 at a Billy Graham crusade and I responded to the gospel and I came forward and I got saved then. So why would Paul then say, I'm reminding you of the gospel in which you are being saved? Well, well, in that case, he's not talking about salvation in and of itself. He's talking about salvation, maybe, I don't even know, this may be a heretical way of saying it, but small s in terms of saving us from the ongoing presence of sin in our life. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all of our sin, 100%. He said on the cross, it is finished. So it's not that he paid for most of the sin, and then he's like, okay, I paid for 90%, Jeff. The next 10% is up to you, or 70-30, or whatever the split may be. No, 100% of Jeff's sin was paid for, and because of my faith in Christ and his grace towards me, I'm forgiven and separated from the record of that sin. The Bible says, as far as east is from west, that's how far he has separated me from that sin. That's true, past tense. But we still sin, don't we? If you, if you came to this church thinking that we're one of those churches that believes Christian people, once they get saved, never sin again, it's been great having you. I, w- I would love to change your mind, but if you're holding on to that one like it's uh, hardcore, non-negotiable theology, this is not the place for you. Neither is most of the New Testament. Like we still struggle with sin. There's this war that takes place because now we have the spirit of God in us, but we have this sin nature we were born with and there's this battle taking place. It's, it's a process that's called sanctification. It begins the day you got saved. It ends the day we stand face to face with Jesus Christ. On that day, we will be like him, the scripture says. That sin nature will be gone. Temptations of the flesh will be gone. Frustrations with life or camping or drunkards or whatever the case may be will be gone. All of it will be gone. We will be perfect just like like Christ. Amen? But we're not there yet. And in the meantime, God has placed his spirit in the lives of every believer that we might grow. The Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that the spirit of God's working in us, changing us from glory to glory. It means he's making us more and more like him. He's shaving off those rough edges He's weakening our desire towards sin. He's inflaming our desire towards holiness. And that's the process that we're on. Some of us faster than others. Some of us have been doing this longer than others and maybe you're farther ahead. Maybe some of us have gone through seasons where you might say we've backslid for a while and we're coming back around or maybe you're heading the wrong direction right now. But the process of God and the plan of God in our lives and in particular in the lives of every believer is that we are in this progression moving towards holiness like Christ. And in the day we see him face to face, that's when that process will be complete. Anybody longing for that day? Anybody weary of the days in between? And I, I've seen, I remember preaching from Romans chapter seven and having a gentleman come up to me and, and strongly rebuke me for this teaching because he was saying, what are you talking about? You can't teach that the way you did. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Romans seven, Paul's talking about his, his desires and his wrestle. And he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do, I, I don't want to do. Who's going to help me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of flesh? And he was like, that's before Paul got saved. After he got saved, he didn't wrestle with that stuff anymore. And I'm like, read the rest of the Bible, dude. He talks about all sorts of struggles and weaknesses and, and thorns in the flesh that he begged God to take away. 
And even in Romans, that's in Romans 7, which is after he declares the gospel. But then he moves into Romans 8 where the spirit of God is there. And it talks about how there's this process that he's making all things new in us and in the world as well. So this is where we are. The gospel declares to us that no one in this room is perfect. If you're perfect, say amen. That would have been so funny if someone wasn't listening. They're like, uh, amen. <laughs> that was just like a sleep test right there. Good to have you guys with us. There's no such thing. That none of us are perfect. No one in this room is perfect. But we stand on the truth of the gospel that says that in light of our perfections, in fact, because of our imperfections, Christ sent his son and paid the penalty. So my faith now and my, my standing before God, I'm not depending on my performance. I'm not depending on my perfections. I'm depending on Christ's perfections. And that's what I stand on to this day. So that's where we're being saved. I've been saved from the penalty of sin. And one day I'll be saved and removed completely from that presence of sin. But, but in the meantime, right now, the power of sin, that constant draw that it still has on us, I am being slowly, slowly, sometimes painfully, slowly saved from as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. So, so we believe that the gospel applies to every area of our life. But the day we got saved and the day we walk through the doors of heaven, we never leave the gospel behind. For too long, the church looked at the gospel as the thing that you get in. And now let's move on and learn other things. But we never, ever, ever leave the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so we've been talking lately in Philippians chapter 2 about the gospel. Paul, we just looked the last couple of weeks, we looked at the beautiful declaration of the gospel, the, the passage on the humility of Christ who, who was equal with God but didn't hold to that. Instead, he set that aside, humbled himself, became like us. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we've been hammering on, and I hammered on it really hard last week, is the idea that because we know those things are true, Life for us as believers should be different. Like if you understand the gospel, believe the gospel, God has put his spirit in you, then life for you should look different than it does if, if that wasn't true. Your life should be different now than it was if those things weren't because the spirit of God's in you and he's moving you in a different direction. You're not on the throne of your life anymore. God is. Jesus took the wheel. Country fans got that. And you're... And we're headed in a different direction now at this point. This is the idea that the gospel, living in the light of the gospel, means we live differently now than we would if it, didn't, if, if it wasn't known to be true. That makes sense? Okay, so if that's true, then how do, we, how do we think about and how do we approach the sins that we still wrestle with in light of the gospel? Yes, we're forgiven. Like, I get that. But how does our life look different when we're still wrestling with sins that people all over the place still wrestle with. I'll give you an example. Like, murder's easy. Those kind of things are easy. How does your life look different? Well, I go to church now, Jeff. Well, good for you. Like, all of that. But, but let's, let's talk about something that's a little harder to really parse out if we can. Let's think, I'll tell you what, let's not let's think. I'll, I'll be honest with myself. I spent some time in self-reflection even yesterday. If you, if you don't do that from time to time, it is really good to sit down with a piece of paper before God and pray that prayer of David says, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. 
Say, Lord, I know that I'm not perfect and I know that I'm not yet there yet. So where are you working in my life? Where are you trying to change me? And there's, there's areas, there's lots of them. Um, if my wife could refrain from saying amen as I mention them, that would be awesome. But a couple of them in particular, sins of selfishness, not always as evident. Well, maybe if a kid steals something, but there's attitudes and motivations of the heart. Pride, fear and anxiety, self-control or a lack thereof. I mean, what about those kinds of sins? What about those things that we wrestle with and that, that are going on inside our heart? How does the gospel apply to this? And how does living in the light of the gospel change that in a way that's different as if we didn't know the gospel was to be true? I mean, let's just consider one of them. We'll take the first one, selfishness. What's that look like? What's selfishness look like in the life of a believer? I'll, I'll tell you, for me, selfishness can tend to reveal itself um, in an attitude, whether it's expressed vocally or just, just a motivation between my, behind my own thoughts and actions. But, but sometimes like this, this feeling like I'm owed something. Like I'm owed something. I worked hard, I'm owed this. Or I did that, I'm owed that. Like this attitude back there that is self-seeking, looking for something that I feel I deserve and have been owed. Or maybe it's a feeling of wanting to be served rather than serve. I'm sure no one else in the audience understands that one, right? What about wanting things to go my way all the time? I've said before, man, if... If people in the world always did what I do, the world would be so much simpler for me. That idea, like, I, I want things to go my way. That's a selfishness attitude. That's a self-centered, that's not willing to understand or think about or consider what someone else wants. That's just saying, I want it this way. And so if that's even the heart, maybe it's not an expressed selfishness, but that's in your heart, that's something you're wrestling with, then how does that begin to manifest? How does that work itself out? I think for me, for sometimes, like the idea, it, 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 it's, not, it's not purposeful, always. Very few people wake up in the morning and go, I'm gonna be selfish today. How shall I do that? This is evidence of the old man, as the Bible puts it. This is that old nature at work. And how does that happen? So when my selfishness is inflamed by things that might go on in life around me, how does that begin to come out? It comes out sometimes as anger, being mad. I didn't get what I want. When we may not pitch a fit like a four-year-old does, except for in our hearts sometimes, right? It, it may come off as um, being quick to blame, Instead of this thing I wanted, now it's not there. And so we find this way of turning things on other people or, or maybe it's not so much quick to blame. Maybe it's this, which is just as damnable. The idea that, okay, I didn't get my way. I feel I deserve something and I didn't get it. So I wanna make sure that I say some things to that person in such a way that they're aware that they let me down and they feel bad about it. Ever done that? So I'll sulk, I'll pout pitch a fit, whatever the case may be. I'll say some things to make sure someone understands that they've wronged me. And my motivation there is that I want them to know that they've upset me and I want them to feel bad about it. That's selfishness. That's raw selfishness. Any of you guys ready to change churches yet? This is true. This is, this is what happens. Okay, so let's just think about this for a second. I'm aware that I have a natural an ingrained in me from the day I was born tendency towards selfishness. 
And the Bible says that living in light of the gospel means I should live differently than I would if I didn't think those things were true. So how does that actually play out? How can that cohabitate? Because keep in mind, if you've been with us or been away for a couple of weeks, in Philippians 1 verse 27, moving into the passage that we're in right here, what does he say? He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Is selfishness in any way worthy of the gospel? No. It might be as opposite to the gospel as you can possibly get. It might be the most anti-gospel thing you could do because we just saw in the gospel how Christ deserved comfort and glory and esteem and position and he sat all those things aside because he was, as the scripture says, esteeming others over himself. He was putting our safety over his comfort. Our situation became the motivation in his life rather than his own comfort. And he sat those things aside to serve, humble himself and die for me. So now listen, what do I do with that? Now, I know this, I know this. The gospel teaches me that the death of Christ on the cross paid the price for 100% of my selfishness. I know that. While I may be wrestling with selfishness, I know for a fact that when God looks at me, he doesn't see a selfish person. Not because I'm changing, but because the blood of Christ has paid for my sin and Christ's righteousness has covered me. And so when Christ looks at me, when God looks at me, he sees his son. He doesn't see a selfish brat, though I still am. Bronwyn, mm mm-mm. All right? (laughs) This is true, right? Somebody give me an amen with that. That is true, amen? Okay, I know that the blood of Christ has paid the price for my selfishness, but I also know that my selfishness is absolutely, absolutely opposed to the gospel. I know that Colossians teaches me that Christ's death canceled sins. So in the economy of God, selfishness is gone, but I know that I'm still battling selfishness and it's still there. So what else do I do? What else do we know? I know this. I know that the cross of Christ doesn't just free me from guilt of selfishness, but it also releases power to fight selfishness. I know that. I know that God didn't die on a cross for a selfish guy named Jeff so that Jeff can just go through life being selfish. I know for a fact he didn't do that. And so now here we are in Philippians. We just heard this amazing text about the gospel and how Christ humbled himself and did the most unselfish thing anyone's ever done. And I'm aware of this thing in me, and you know what your things are too. And I read, what do we do? Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what Paul says. He just declared the beauty of the gospel. And he says, therefore, in other words, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this occurred, therefore, 
something happens, something changed. It affects us in some way. And that's what he's going into now in this text in Philippians chapter two. If you've been with us for any length of time, we've seen this in every book Paul writes. There's always this declaration of the glory of God in the gospel. And then he gets into, because of the gospel, Christian, listen up, live like this, treat your husband like this, treat your wife like this, serve your church like this, uh, minister to neighbors like this. It always comes that way. The gospel has to come first because without the power of the gospel in our lives, we don't have the ability or the power to fight the things he's then telling us to fight. Amen? And so in light of the gospel, Therefore, because these things are true, he says, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, don't just do this because I'm here, but even when I'm gone, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let me ask you this then. How much human effort was involved in the salvation from sin of Jeff Hensley and the work of Christ on the cross. How much of Jeff's effort went into that? The answer is zero. Some of you guys are catching on. Hold up the international symbol for how much effort went into Jeff being saved. None. Zero. None. And historically, there is a fear sometimes in teaching and emphasizing that very point among many people. Because The gospel declares, you look at Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 3, there's none who seek him. Uh, uh, Isaiah, our righteousness is filthy rags. There's throughout the gospel, it is very clear, Ephesians, that our salvation came uh, by grace, not works, so that we can't boast. The idea is this, you did nothing to earn God's favor. God freely gave you his favor and there's nothing you can do, both good or bad, to change how much God loves you. And that is the truth of the gospel. It's a beautiful truth, amen? But there's a fear among many people in teaching that. Because if we tell people they don't have to do anything to be saved, many people go, but the fear is then they won't do anything. If I tell selfish Jeff that God loves him and will save him no matter how selfish he is, he might just stay selfish, That's what many people fear with regards to gospel proclamation. It's even uncomfortable to us. Most of us wouldn't even necessarily parent our own kids that way. It's scary to just remove boundaries and just pour love. And he says, but I love you. I died for you. It had nothing to do with anything you did, Jeff. Just believe, Jeff. And that is the absolute truth. Our salvation was by grace through faith, as Ephesians says. But what about people that don't change? Well, Paul talks about it in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore with him, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Hear that. In order that we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just the way Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Translation, it's what I said earlier. Jesus died and rose again to save me, not that I might stay selfish, but that now life might look different for Jeff because of what Christ did and because of Christ's work in my life. 
Everybody tracking with me on that? In other words, if we're believers, and I'm talking to the church, the believers in Jesus Christ today, and willingly inviting anyone who's not a believer to listen in and even hold us accountable if you want. But listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, but he didn't just save us so that we get our ticket punched into heaven and we can just live any old way till we get there. He died that our lives might be different because of the gospel than they would be if there were no gospel. Amen? Okay, how? What does that look like? How does that play out? How does that actually happen? This whole lifelong process of sanctification, how does this happen? The text that we're reading today in Philippians has been used, um, I believe erroneously, to advocate an approach towards change and growth in Jesus Christ that is not helpful to the church. So my only point today is to address that one point and push one thing home. And that is this, that in this passage where it says in Philippians chapter 2, lost my place, Philippians chapter 2, there it is, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a belief system out there that says this, look, we are saved 100% apart from our efforts. Is that true? Yes, And this even says that it's God who works in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's God's work. So in the same way, I'm saved by grace alone apart from effort. I am changed by grace alone apart from effort. Is that true? Is it true? There were a few no's, but there were a little more no. So there's two common errors concerning the gospel that happen all the time. One of them is, that I'm in charge of my own salvation and I have to work to earn it. But the pendulum error on the other side is that, is that God's working in me, therefore I don't have to do anything on the backside of that. Well, let's not worry about what Jeff says. Let's see what the scriptures say. I've got a text for you. I think we have a slide for it from 2 Peter 1, verse 3. You can see it on some of the screens. If anyone has 20 grand and wants to buy us new projectors, I'll, you, I'll take you fishing. You'll be my, like my best friend. That was terrible and so true. Um, it's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. And then look verse five. For this very reason, make every, say it with me loud, effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about what he says. He says, God has given you all the promises of scripture in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually says, he's even empowered you with everything that you need to do what I'm about to tell you to do. He's given you everything you need. And in light of that, what does he say? Make every effort. Make every effort. You gotta be careful here. 
Because like I said, people will see them and go, see, we have to work for our salvation. No, 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 no. If you read the context of the book, he's talking to the church that has already experienced the salvation and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He's talking to save people. And he's saying in light of that, because God has given you all of these promises, because God has empowered you, because God has poured his spirit out on you, make every effort to live in an unselfish way, Jeff, with affection toward your brothers, Jeff. I mean, effort, that's another word for what? Work. Can't talk about work in church, Jeff. It's a grace church. Okay, well, let's just look further. How about Colossians 3? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Heartily, that means hard. Work hard. Now the context of Colossians is even more clear because the first couple of chapters of Colossians, he's talking about the gospel and and how Christ has died, the preeminence of Jesus and his resurrection that we've been buried with him in baptism. He lays all these things out beautifully. I can't wait to teach this book coming up soon. And then in chapter three of Colossians, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is. He says, now if you've been saved, then begin to seek the things that are above. And later in that text comes to the verse right here, whatever you do, work hard in anything that you do. Work hard as for the Lord and not men. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Anybody ever gone on a long run recently? It's kind of hard, right? It's hard. It's work. It's sweaty. It's painful. It causes injuries, at least in me. Some people describe this runner's high thing. I don't know that I've ever seen that. If runner's high means bent over the gutter, throwing up repeatedly, I'm totally, I've done that. Like it's hard. And Paul's using an analogy of a long marathon type race. Hey, run with perseverance. In other words, keep running, hang in there. It's long, you're gonna be tired, I know, but keep going. These witnesses are cheering you on. The gospel is true in your life. Keep going. There's so many more. Uh, one more here that I have a, a text, I think, or a slide for. First Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Translation, hey, run, discipline, work, effort, training, endurance, keep going. And he's talking about living a godly life, about about pursuing holiness, about living on mission with God. There's so many others that Romans 7 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the code. You serve. That's work. That's effort. There's, there's a will involved here. Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not by sending his own son 
in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lived, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. In every one of the verses when you go through, it's me working, it's me serving, it's me running, it's me striving, it's me that needs endurance, it's me that is chasing, it's me that's pursuing, it's me that needs self-discipline, it's me that's, that's earning. Now again, he's preaching to the saved. He's not talking about how we are saved, but in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is effort involved? Is the process of sanctification where we are changed? What's the posture of the Christian? Well, even in Ephesians 6, we're given armor, not a snuggie. We're given a sword, not a back scratcher. And I just can't help but wonder how many times in our own lives, and I'm talking to us, church, family meeting here on the holidays, I wonder how many times our posture towards sin in our life is aggressive versus passive. And I wonder how many times we pray the prayer, Lord, free me from this sin. Or we hear a sermon on it, and it's that one week where you're like, I know my wife emailed the pastor because he's talking about me today. And we pray for relief from it. We pray that God would take it away. But what's our posture like? What's our action like? What does our will do? Now, look, sometimes the miraculous occurs. I've seen stories, and I've talked to people who, you know, they were in a meth house with the pipe in their hand, I think he used pipes with meth, um, at the time, got saved and never touched it again because the desire was just miraculously taken away from them. Can God do that? I've rocked your confidence, apparently. Can God do that? Yes, he can do that. Does God do that? Yes, he does that. Is that the status quo in every area of sin in our life? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, what, what tends to happen a little bit differently is first is as I'm in the word of God and I'm learning more and more about his will, about his nature, about his call on my life, I begin to understand things in my life. I, the Holy Spirit working in me begins to convict me of areas that aren't like him, that are antithetical to the gospel, that are pushing against what God has called me to be, that are holding me back as Hebrews 12 says, it's weighing me down and the Holy Spirit begins to convict me. The Bible is showing me a better way God's Spirit's wooing me to a different life. And then empowered by the Spirit, I have to engage at some point my will and say, I don't want to be this guy anymore. Is the will involved in the life of a Christian? Yes, the empowered will of God, or the empowered will of the believer is absolutely crucial to this process of sanctification. We have to engage our will at some point. That's why the scriptures over and over. We're, here it says in our text, work out your salvation. You know what that literally means? Put into effect. Here's the gospel, Jeff. Now put this stuff into effect in your life. Produce it or accomplish it with trembling, with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's watching you, Jeff, and if you act selfish one more time, he's gonna squash you like a bug and move on to the next guy. Of course not. It's the miracle. 
Jeff, in fear and trembling, understand that the creator of heaven and earth stepped out of glory to live on your behalf. The creator of heaven and earth has put his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in that tomb is in you, Jeff, right now. Be in awe of that. In your selfish shell, God put his spirit in that crummy jar of clay and the spirit of God is wanting to work in you and change you and God loves you enough that he doesn't want you to stay some little selfish brat anymore. He wants you to grow up to be like Christ. That's how much God cares about you, Jeff. That's how important you are to him. Be in awe. Let that cause you to tremble, not in a fear that wants you to run and hide from God, but in awe of what God has done for you and wants to do in you. Understand all of that and apply the gospel to your life, Jeff. And so we as Christians, what's our position towards sin? We make war with sin. You don't make war passively. There is effort involved. There's strategy involved. There's camaraderie and brotherhood involved. But while the grace of God to save us was given freely apart from any effort on our own, I'm telling you right now, the scriptures make it so abundantly clear that for the saved, for the saint, for the follower of Jesus Christ, we are to engage our empowered will to to tap into the new desires that God begins to pour into us for holiness and to be like him and to make war with sin in our lives. The Christian life is not passive. It's hard. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. It will, it, will, it will demand everything. Following Christ, it is not easy. There's a reason. Like you, you can watch in the ministry of Jesus. I've pointed this out before. His teachings and his miracles and all these benefits are happening and the crowds are growing, growing, growing. And then he starts talking about, you know, to follow me, it means you're gonna have to uh, pick up your cross and follow me. And people are like, what? Out. And they just leave. It even turns to the disciples who are struggling with it themselves. And he says, are you going to leave too? And what do they say? Where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. But they had some growing to do. It's hard following Jesus. Easy believism stuff that just says follow Jesus and life's going to get better leaves so many disillusioned former Christians behind all the time because they were promised a bill of goods that following Jesus means life gets really, really smooth. Put a fish on your car, it'll never rain. You'll never get one of those little uh, spider windshield crack things from another car. No one's ever gonna cut you off again. If they do, they'll pull over and apologize for sure. Is that what it's like? Hey, any Christian in here has been walking with Jesus longer than 20 years. Is that what it's like? No, it's hard. It's hard. It demands our times. It demands our effort, our energies, our resources, our treasure. It affects your relationships. It affects your possessions. It affects the way you approach your job. It is the hardest thing that you will ever do. The best thing you could possibly ever do. You know what? Thanks, Jeff, but I've been wrestling with sin my whole life. And I've been walking with God for 20 years and I am kind of fighting. I'm fighting, but I feel like I lose more than I win. That's okay. Fight. You don't stand Paul already told us we're not standing on our record on the fight. We're standing on what? The gospel of Jesus Christ that says, my failures don't disqualify me from God's grace and love. But I'm fighting. 
because I want to know him. I want to be like him. I want to honor him. I want to serve him because he's, he's God. And the more that I learn about who he is, he deserves it. And the more that I learn about what he's done, he even more deserves it. And so I fight. And it's tiring. Maybe I have to grab a brother. Man, I've been fighting this fight along for a long, long time, and I'm by myself in it, and I just can't seem to get over top of it. Okay, no one fights a war by themselves. You need to grab a brother. You need to go to your wife. You need to confess that sin. You need to go to someone and say, hey, this is what I've been wrestling with, and I need help. You need to bring that thing out into the light, but we slay sin. We kill it. We expose it. We want to destroy it. We are not passive against it. We fight and make war against sin, which involves effort. And so my prayer for us, church, let's make war. In light of the gospel, may our lives look different because of what Christ has done for us. And when you're failing, maybe you're in here and you've been wrestling with whatever. Maybe it's an addiction. You've been fighting that thing your whole life. I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is you might have to fight that same desire and temptation every day of your life until the day that you stand face to face with Jesus. That desire may not go away. That desire actually might get stronger and harder to fight. But but here's what I can tell you. When Paul went to the Lord struggling this thing that was referred to as this thorn in the flesh, he begged God to take it away. And God's response was this, my grace is sufficient for you. And so here's where I want to encourage you. Just keep fighting and stand on the grace of God. Don't stand on the failures or the victories. I'm going to close right after this, but we just had, we really should have just put off communion until after, but we, we just had communion. I remember growing up in the Baptist church, and I remember that passage that talks about don't take communion in an unworthy way, and I remember scared to death that if I had some unconfessed sins that I hadn't really dealt with yet, and I was to take communion, that I would drop dead. I mean that sincerely. There's, there's biblical passage for that. Like, I, I literally feared that. That's what I was afraid of. And so there were times when I was young, the communion trays would come by, and I would just pass them on because I was afraid to take the communion elements because I wasn't worthy. You know what that is? That's me standing on my track record. When the gospel is the power of salvation and sanctification, instead of hiding and refusing communion because we don't want to go remember the blood of Christ when we have, if you will, blood on our hands— We should run to the table of God when we're struggling. We should run to the communion table. To take communion, I believe, unworthily means that I'm taking it with no regard to who Christ is. I have not put my faith in him. I don't care about what his sacrifice was. I'm taking it just to look the look or to walk the walk or talk the talk, but he's not my Lord and I don't accept his his, uh, his, uh, uh, sacrificial act of salvation. That is to make a mockery of the sacrifice of Christ and that, I believe, is to take communion in an unworthy manner. But as a believer... You're struggling? We don't stand on our track record. We stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And communion is what? It's a reminder of what? The gospel. So if you're struggling and you've been struggling and you're not sure if you'll ever stop struggling with sin, just look at the struggle as great evidence that the spirit of God is at work in your life. Look at the guilt you have over that sin, the wrestling, the, the um, not the guilt, I'm sorry, but the condom, uh, conviction really important, that you have on that sin. Look at that as a sign that God is at work and don't run from him, run to him, but fight. Fight off your pride and tell someone about your struggle. 
come before others and say, man, I'm, I'm dealing with this. But they, they'll think I'm not perfect. Exactly. Exactly. And how many times do we go to someone else to ask for prayer, to confess sin to one another, as the scripture calls us to do? And so many times you hear the other person go, man, I could use some prayer too. The reality is we're just chicken and we're too prideful about our own track records to do that most of the time. But I'm telling you, heritage, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, live differently. Amen? Sam's gonna come up and close us in one last song. I'm gonna ask you guys if you'll stand with me. And we're gonna take just a minute to do some work with the Lord in this very matter. I'm not gonna stand up here with you guys and be like, make war with sin, go get a burger. I guess it's an opportunity. Because there's no question people in here right now convicted with this very thing. There's no question about it. I was convicted studying this stuff. So here's what I want us to do. With all eyes closed and all heads bowed, not, not because like, oh, we don't want to see if someone raises their hand. And we're not doing hand raising anyway. That's not the issue. This is about I want you to do work with God for you. Don't pray for the person sitting next to you. Lord, convict them. <laughs> Lord, fix them. This, this sermon's for them. Get my son who doesn't know you. Get him. Ah, no. This is you and God because you're not perfect. No one in this room is. And so here's where we're going to start. All eyes closed, all heads bowed. David was a man after God's own heart. His sin is abundantly clear, laid out very clear, and it's grievous in Scripture. But the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And when we see his writing of the Psalms, we see him wrestling with sin, but we see him always coming back and running to God for forgiveness and for help. And he himself in the Psalms prayed this, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. So right now, take just a minute and ask the Lord in his grace and in his love to reveal to you the things that are wrecking your life right now. The things that are keeping you from being like Christ right now. The sins that are holding you back. Maybe they're ones that you're really, really aware of. And maybe there's others that are so hidden in your own pride or your own sin that you haven't even stopped to reflect on them yet. But ask now that the spirit of God would move in your heart and reveal to you the wickedness of your own heart. Now, as you're still doing that, as you're still praying, here's the good news. Maybe some of you, even as you think about it, are finding conviction. Maybe even as the thought of that sin pops into your head, you might even feel guilty just for sitting in a church where the idea is even there. But here's the good news. God convicts us and disciplines us because he loves us and he wants to grow us. So it's not the condemnation of Satan going, you loser. If you're feeling that, that is Satan. That is not Jesus. God is wooing you to a better way. He's wooing you to a better life and he's wooing you to freedom. And so here's the time now to apply the gospel to your own heart, to confess that sin before God, to ask his forgiveness of that sin, and then to confess that you will stand on the record of Jesus Christ in your life and to ask that the power of the gospel would come to bear on the sins of our hearts and souls even right now. Preach the gospel to yourself and pray that the power of the gospel will be unleashed in your life.